Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. That is generally how the expression goes. Christmas and New Year greetings are often expressed hand in hand. So this New Year, I wanted to share an important lesson that the Lord taught me this past Christmas, which I believe applies to all of us. So in the last official in-person workday that I had before I went on my uh, year-end break, uh, we as a team had a meeting together for the whole day, actually. We met to talk through some of the pain points that we were experiencing as a team and to come up with some better ideas on how to actually prioritize our work moving into 2022. And at the end of the pretty packed day, stacked with meetings and conversations and discussions, one of my colleagues handed me a bag. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, she said. And I was startled. I, I didn't really quite see, see it coming. I didn't really expect uh, receiving anything from anyone. But what was interesting was the first words that flew out of my mouth in response. I said, oh, oh, well, you didn't have to. Why, why bother? I didn't really quite see this coming. Thank you. While I eventually actually got to thanking my colleague, gratitude wasn't really the most immediate response. It took me some time to kind of turn that corner. It took me some time to kind of get there. And quite frankly, how I was really feeling was I felt quite burdened. I felt like now I have to respond in some reciprocal way. I had to do something in return. I had to get my colleague something else in response. Where do I start? What do I do? Where do I go? What an inconvenience. And I share this brief story because we can actually respond to the gift of the gospel in, in similar ways. While we can be thankful, we can also feel this weight to do something for God in return, to repay him in some way, to perform some spiritual discipline religiously, to earn his favor in response to his gift. And while I think it's important to note that God does call for a genuine response, the response that he desires flows from a heart freed by overflowing gratitude, not a heart constricted by overwhelming duty. And today I'm going to share from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, in the hopes that it moves us from the sense of, I have to, this overwhelming duty, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to read, I have to pray, to I get to, this overwhelming, overflowing sense of gratitude. I get to commune with God, I get to pray, I get to read his word and know him more. So let's read First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 together. It says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I have three main points that I wanted to share from the text today, and I'll finally close off with an application. And my three main points here today are God's intentional mercy, our intended destination, and God's indestructible sustenance. So let's kick things off with God's intentional mercy. God's word says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is his great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to move from death to life, from sinners far away from God to saints set apart by God for God. And this 
And he's done this. He's caused this to happen. He has caused us to be born again, which implies this whole word cause really implies uh, that God has acted willfully. He has made a choice. He chose to save us because of his great love. God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whoever so believes in him may have eternal life. And we are born again to this living hope. And what is the nature of this hope? It isn't just any kind of hope. It's not just some wishful thinking. It's really grounded in a person to a point in history. It's grounded in the certainty and the confidence of Christ and his resurrection. So important is the resurrection of Christ to Christians that it prompted the Apostle Paul to write these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This resurrection, I recalled when I first came to Christ about 10 or 11 years ago, really revitalized and regenerated my heart. The suffering of God, a servant God on the cross, who then rose again in victory, infused in me this great hope, knowing that though things might not make sense in the present, it will all come to be and make sense in the future. It provided me this, this, this context through which to really understand life and to make sense of life, to actually be free to live life. And though outwardly we may be decaying, inwardly we're being made new each day. So church, Christ is risen. We have been born again to a living hope by his great mercy. My second point from this text is our intended destination. Flowing from the text, we see that God is not just intentional in showing us mercy, but he's also given us a new destination to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And in many ways, we are free because we are actually bound. We are bound to heaven's gate. And this is a destination where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. It is a place, as Revelations 21 verse 4 reveals, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, and we will eventually receive and obtain it because God is keeping it for us. And Jesus affirms this in John um, chapter 14, verses 2 to 3. Jesus says, in my father's room, in my father's house, excuse me, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. We are headed to the Father's house. A place is being prepared for me and you. Christ will return and he will take us home to be with him. This is our intended destination. And if we believe that this is true, the certainty of tomorrow and our intended destination ought to shape the way in which we live today. Finally, my last point, God's indestructible sustenance. God's intentional mercy has led us to be born again to a living hope, towards this new destination, heaven, that God has prepared and kept for us, our inheritance. And now we see God's graceful hand at work in our lives. It is he who not just initiates salvation, but also guards us through faith in our journey. It says in verse 5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. God by his power guards us through faith. 
It is he who enables obedience in us. It is he who enables repentance in us. It is he who carries us forward step by step, day by day, moment by moment. It is he who guides us from falling. In, in Psalm chapter 121, verses 2 to 3, and then 5, God's word says, he will, not let, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade and your right hand. That moment that when we almost fell into sin, but resisted, that's God's power at work in us. He is our strength in weakness. He empowers Christ-centered living, both in our obedience, but also in our repentance. The Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 27. And this is why I believe Paul was so bold to say that if God is for us, who can stand against us? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Why? Because he really recognized that the Christian life is spirit-empowered by a faithful God who never fails. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit. Zechariah verses, chapter 4, verses 6. So what does this all mean to us? How does this really relate to us in our day-to-day? -day? So let me revisit back uh, the story that I shared earlier about my colleague giving me that gift that I felt so burdened by. And this is not an illustration that is perfect, but hopefully you'll be able to follow through on my train of thought here. You know, the reason why I felt really burdened by this gift was because I really failed to acknowledge my need. I felt like I was good the way I was. I didn't really need anything extra. I was fine. But my colleague actually gave me something that actually was good for me. She gave me chocolates. And if you knew me, if you know me, you know that I actually love chocolates. She gave me chocolates precisely because she knew me. But here I was rejecting this very good gift, feeling really inconvenienced by the whole experience because of my inability to see beyond myself and to recognize what it is that I actually need. Similarly, our Father in Heaven knows what's best for us. He gave us the best gift that he, we could ever ask for, the gift of salvation expressed through His Son. By His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Yet so often, we, we don't see the need to receive the gift. And even when we have received the gift, we feel quite troubled by it, quite inconvenienced by it. God, this is great, but this is too heavy for me. Faith in you means that I have to do this and that and this. And because we are so preoccupied in ourselves or on ourselves, we fail to see just how much of this great gift we actually need. The need for our sins to be forgiven. The need for us to be fully restored and to be made free. But also how much of this gift has to do with us in part, but more to do with God in whole. It is his mercy that initiates. It is he who gives us this new destination. It is he who supplies and provides and sustains us in every need that we may have. God knows that we need him more than we think we need him. And he supplies abundantly. And I think the more and more we begin to recognize our great need and God's heart and hand to meet us at our point of need, we begin to grow in appreciation for the gift of his son, the gift of salvation. We begin to move from this overwhelming sense of burden to perform to an, overflow, to an overflowing freedom to abide. For freedom, Christ has set us free. 
stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. God is intentional in showing mercy. He has given us an intended destination and it is he who provides us with the daily sustenance we need. Greetings of peace to everyone. I would love to share the verse that really inspires and speak to me in my walk with God. Let me read through the verse from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This verse is written for the nation of Israel held captive in Babylon. I remember during my college and high school years that I always write down this verse in my post-it note or in my notebook and wrongly interpreted it as a personal verse to me that I'm entitled to receive good things only. Sometimes in my life that I felt I'm held captive because of the problems that I'm going through. And I thought, God has forgotten me. Praise God. Through the years of my Christian journey, the Holy Spirit helped me to realize that He thinks of me and He has a greater plan even there's a suffering in this fallen world. Looking into the big picture referring to this verse, there is a promise reminder that life can be difficult, but God is really in control and He is always with us. He is our Emmanuel. No matter who you are and what you're going through right now, we can have a hope and peace because we have a big God who overcame trials to save us from our sins. I'm so grateful for this reminder that our loving God has a plan for each and every one of us. Happy New Year to all and God bless. Hey guys, my name is Miles and uh, today I'd like to uh, read a passage with you from Luke. It's Luke chapter 14 verses 15 through 24. Uh, it's often referred to as the parable of the great banquet or sometimes the great supper. Uh, again, it's uh, Luke 15, I'm sorry, Luke 14 verses 15 through 24. Let's read. <clears throat> now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus replied, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. <clears throat> and he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I wanna go see it. I ask you to have me excused. The second one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I wanna go test them. I ask you to also have me excused. And the third and final one says, I just married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city 
and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And again, that's Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. Now, usually when I've seen this passage presented, it's to illustrate the idea of God's gift of salvation. And indeed, it is a uh, great passage to explore that concept. After all, uh, the master, God, is inviting those who do not know him to come and feast with him, to, to know him better and to, and to learn about his provisions. And the invitation, of course, is free. It's not based on merit or social standing. In fact, in verse 17, it clearly says that the master has done everything. Everything is ready for the guest. Uh, now he's just waiting for those in the world to accept his invitation to know his love and enter his kingdom. So while the parable is often used to preach the free gift of salvation, that's not what I wanna focus on today. Instead, I would like to explore what it means for those uh, of us, like the, the members, or most of the members, I assume, at Harvest KL, who have already accepted the master's invitation. So rather than focusing on the guest, I want to look closer at the servant. He is someone who, like us, is involved in his master's mission to gather the nations. He is someone who is clearly known by his master, and he literally dwells in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23, 6. So if you're a believer, I think this is who you should be paying attention to. And if you do, you'll notice a few important things. I'd like to share uh, two things that I think are important to the individual, and then two things that I think the collective church body uh, might be able to uh, learn from and apply. So first, let's look at uh, two takeaways for individual believers. Number one, notice there are no excuses from the servant. While others make excuses, the servant completely submits to the master's will. Uh, when the master changes the plan, the servant says okay and obeys. When the master says bring in the poor and the blind and uh, the lame, all people who have no social benefit for the servant, the servant still obeys. And when the master says go out into the highways and the, the back alleys of the city, places where danger lurks, again the servant obeys. So clearly, uh, the servant understands that when he agreed to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that part of his rent was giving up his excuses. Which brings me to the second point for us believers. And that is that there is a cost to following Christ. Now for the guest's salvation, represented by the feast, <clears throat> is indeed a free gift since they've clearly done nothing to earn the invitation. But once the invitation is accepted, all of them, all of us, must consider the implications of staying at the master's house and becoming a Christ follower. Now, <clears throat> to help his own disciples consider the cost, Jesus asked them a rhetorical question in verse 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? And you can almost imagine at this point the disciples, you know, wondering, yeah, good point, but what is the cost? And Jesus answers that question actually in the verses right before that from 25 to 27. Jesus very clearly, explicitly, and transparently lays out the potential costs 
of being a servant in the master's house. In verses 25 and 26, he makes it painfully clear that if you want to be a servant, you have to be willing to give up everything, even family perhaps. And in verse 27, he tells those that might consider servanthood that they will need to pick up their crosses in order to follow him. So clearly there is a cost to following the master's commands. All of us must, just as Christ compels his disciples to do, spend some time weighing the costs of discipleship. And this leads to my final two points. These points are directed at the collective body of servants known as Harvest KL. Now, all of us here uh, in the church, we're all at different uh, parts of our our. Uh, of our faith and our, our walk with Christ, right? Some of us maybe uh, have accepted the invitation to the feast, but we're still trying to wrestle with the cost of staying in the house of the Lord. Uh, others are well into our, our way of servanthood training, uh, and others are somewhere in between there. But no matter where you are in that walk, I think these final two points are applicable to all of us in Harvest. Uh, the first point that I think the church should take away from this passage is that the church needs more servants and less excuses. Notice that the excuses in Luke 14 are not bad ones. <clears throat> One guy wants to go check on a business investment. Another guy wants to go check out some uh, possessions he just bought. And the other guy just wants to hang out with his new wife. Uh, alone, without context, these are all good things. The problem is when they or anything interferes with our relationship with God. This is why God eventually turns to the poor and the blind, not because they're anything special, but because he knows that their earthly kingdoms are so small that they're going to be more willing to, to give them up and follow him. In other words, they're going to have less excuses. So today, I think as a church, we must consider if we want to be a church of excuses or servants. Will we cling to the things of this world or will we willingly lay down our excuses at the altar? Will we have excuses for our elders, God's appointed leaders for this season when they need our help? Or will we be too busy with work or relationships when God wants us to go out into the highways and hedges and compel those to come? and taste and see that our Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8. So God has made it abundantly clear uh, in the New Testament that his global mission is to be carried out by the local church. And there is a feast being prepared right now, right here in KL. Everything is already done, the scripture tells us. God is now just waiting for his servants to do their part. So will we as a church listen to his directions, seek out non-believers, tell them about the goodness of our master, and invite them to meet him? Or will you be like the guest and say, I'm too busy, I ask you to have me excused. And that brings me to the final point for our church. Let's not forget about our good master. Now to follow him is not easy and the cost is great. Uh, we, we see this uh, all throughout scripture. The apostle Paul knows this, his disciples will eventually learn it. We already know this as well. But it is worth him. It is worth it, even though the cost is great, because we serve a good, good master. We serve a master who is willing to lay down his own life for our sake. We serve a master who celebrates every time a lost sheep or servant comes back into his house. We serve a master who carries our burdens with us, who walks with us through the darkest valleys and leads us to green pastures. And as much as we think we do for him, remember it pales in comparison to what 
he has already done for us and what he promises to do in the future. As Ephesians 3.20 says, this is a verse that our church should be uh, very familiar with this year. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Harvest KL, this is the master that we serve. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us go out into the highways and the byways of KL and tell the world how good our master is. Thanks for listening and reading with me. See you guys.